Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? Good. Had a great weekend with the kids. Took uh, took them fishing yesterday, and my daughter has this little little uh, just in the Boise River. Uh, she has this little Moana fishing pole, dude. And that thing is like, <laughs> I'm packing that like next time I go somewhere because it's the luckiest freaking pole. We caught like this 16 inch, just beautiful trout. Really? She was like reeling it in. She's like, oh, it's a rainbow, Dad. Just like I wished, you know. <laughs> so yeah. <funny. laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so we had, yeah, we had a blast. My little boys, you know, he's almost three, but man he loves to fish he just cat cast that thing out reels it in it's like he's been doing it forever it's so cool to watch that is a lot of fun i remember those days that we had it wasn't moana but we had definitely some sort of disney pole for my daughter when she was that age yeah good times um yeah man it is a good weekend it's uh signs of spring decided to get now bear season's coming there's a, a lot to be looking forward to for sure Absolutely. um yeah, well, let's kick it off, get right into some listener questions. Uh, again, guys, we got the new uh, SpeakPipe opportunity for you guys to leave an audio question, uh, which we've gotten a good response to already, and just appreciate those coming in. And we'll do a mix today of email questions as well as those audio questions. Uh, and just want to remind you guys as well that during the month of May, which, uh, no, April, I'm getting way ahead of myself. During the month of April, uh, we'll be doing a giveaway for a custom Chris Reeves uh, and Exomount Gear knife. That's a limited edition knife we made. So any questions submitted through SpeakPipe uh, during that month, including we'll start early, including now, uh, will be entered in that giveaway. And we're actually doing a, a podcast, like a Q&A podcast with Tim Reeve from Chris Reeves Knife soon to answer a bunch of your knife listener questions which would be cool to do as well. But look for that SpeakPipe link in the show description and you can leave us your question there. And we'll get into one of those now, but it's actually not a question. It's kind of a, a pro tip from a taxidermist, which was pretty cool for him to share via SpeakPipe as well. So here's this pro tip. Hey guys, I have not so much a question, but a semi-pro tip. About a year ago, you guys had discussed um, skull, skull care for European mounts in the field. And I had written in and said to not let the skulls dry out and try to keep them, keep them wet or get them in a stream or something. I came up with a better method this year. If you take um, some six-inch shrink wrap, and as soon as you get the, the head skinned and get the, the jaw off and the eyes out and cut as much meat away, wrap that skull super tight in the, in the shrink wrap, and that will prevent it from drying out and yellowing on you. Well, there you have it, Steve. A pro tip for skull care. I like it. I like it. Yeah. I wonder what um, what's a timeline need to be. You need to be concerned about, right? I mean, weather's mm. pro like really hot and dry, and then right. kill a mule deer early in August, and you're five days from getting out, or is it, you know, even killing an elk in September, and you're just a day or two? Like, I've, um, I'd be curious, like the at what point, you know, like at what temperature does meat spoil? At what temperature and time duration do you have to worry about the skull getting hard and causing issues Mm -hmm. yeah it seems like anything else the sooner the better in general advice and then it probably depends on like you mentioned wrapping it after you get it cleaned up as much as possible get the eyes out trim it with you know any of the meat and all that so uh, like most things it probably depends on how you care for it as well um yeah the the other thing this made me think of steve uh was using that technique also for travel um there's been times where you know whether we're in kodiak and bringing some deer skulls home or 
shoot, I've flown with an entire uh, elk <laughs> rack uh, with skull attached before. Um, and so anytime you're transporting that stuff, you know, you want to seal it well, you want to protect it well, tape it well, but obviously the airlines are, don't want any smells, don't want any seepage, any liquid. And so this makes a good, call it base layer to begin to wrap that up using that saran wrap and get that skull, um, kind of fully, not fully protected from a cushion perspective, but make sure those smells and any seepage isn't leaking. So it's definitely a tip that I'll be using for sure in the future, maybe on a mountain goat hunt and stuff like that this coming fall. All right. See, we had a question. This one was emailed in on the SIG Cross and BDX system. This guy wrote in and said, I recently purchased a SIG Cross rifle and I would like to put a SIG BDX scope on it. I recall hearing you guys talk about the binos from SIG and that they connect to the BDX scope. Is that correct? And are the binos worth it? So this was a timely question that came in. We actually just recorded a podcast with Jake from SIG. And in that specific podcast, it was all about rangefinders, not only six products, but really about rangefinding technology and understanding a lot of what goes into that and also what affects the performance of rangefinders. So that's an in-depth podcast to come. Um, we touched briefly on the BDX and on the SIG binos on that, but uh, what would you say first off for this guy in terms of uh, a BDX scope and then specifically how well the binos work with it and then if it's worth it? Uh, yeah, I took that system on a uh, sheep hunt uh, that Tyler and I did in 2020 up to Alaska. Um, really, really liked it, man. I mean, the um, had minimal issues, minimal to none, basically, of getting the rangefinder to connect to the scope. Uh, I really liked the simplicity of just, you know, you, you got to make sure the, the two are paired. And I think that was as simple as touching you just had to like touch the, the rifle scope like uh adjust the dial or something like that just activated the battery kind of wakes remember. it up yeah basically wakes it up and then in your range like a blue light should pop up like right on the eyepiece and it tells you the two are connected and then you just range and it just puts a dot exactly where you need to shoot and i mean it sure was nice right like there's some um precision there that when you're you know uh like my current system with the Swaro EL range binos and then it tells you to dial let's say it says dial 8.36 MOA well you only have eight and a quarter and eight and a half mm -hmm. um and so you got to pick which one you're gonna round up or round down and sometimes that depends on the conditions and the wind and the angle of the shot and um in the distance as well uh where at the SIG system it's just put in a dot exactly where you need to hold so that some of that precision was really nice um I probably would continue to look at that further, but it's illegal here in Idaho. And so for me, it's like, I needed to find a, I just want one solution that works for me everywhere. Uh, so that's why I kind of um, went and tried different things than at the following season, but the system's fantastic. I really like it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I thought uh, the glass was plenty nice in the rifle scope that I had. Um, and SIGs, as we talked about in this uh, podcast forthcoming, um, the SIG's rangefinding ability is unmatched. I have not seen any other rangefinders that that read as fast and as precise as, as what theirs do, and and as many different targets, right? Like uh, even my Swore range ELTAs versus those uh, the SIG binos that I have, it's like it's night night and day difference. Especially when I'm trying to range something at you know five six hundred yards, uh, I just get a like a response every single time out of the SIG 
where the swirl sometimes like, ah, nothing came back, push the button again, nothing, push the button, finally a range pops up. So definitely, uh, I think they're a class leader in that regard. Yeah, you kind of, I got the impression he had some questions on compatibility. Like he was talking about, you know, mm. do they connect? Is that correct? Basically, long story short, like anything that says SIG BDX is going to be compatible. So whether you're talking about the binos with a scope or a handheld rangefinder with a scope or different models of their scopes, you know, they, they pretty clearly label products as being BDX or not. And if it's BDX, it's part of that, call it ecosystem, where you're going to have that compatibility. And so there's multiple scopes that are BDX enabled, multiple rangefinders, both handheld and binos that are BDX enabled. And so you can pick any pair of those that you want, and they're going to be cross compatible. So, um, yeah. And then he asked, are the binos worth it? So we've talked a fair amount about using range finding binos and honestly, they're great. Um, but there's definitely a huge jump. So, you know, the SIGs are going to be down somewhere around a thousand dollars. Uh, Vortex has some options that are down around that price point as well. And then you basically have to make this big, massive leap to get into more alpha level glass with range finding. Um, so then you're talking Swaro, Zeiss, Leica, all having options that are going to cost about three times that much. And there's not too much in between. And as you said, Steve, like from a pure ranging perspective, the SIGs, you know, perform as well, if not better than any of the others from a ranging perspective, you're just giving up on the glass quality a bit. And so it really depends on, you know, the, the SIG binos, the Kilo 3000s are the ones we've had totally usable. You're definitely making sacrifices, uh, first and last light and that low light performance, as well as some of the color hue, color contrast type stuff. So if you're looking at it from an optical high-end perspective, you know, maybe if you're coming from Swaros or something like that, it's definitely a downgrade optically. Um, but if you're looking for like a relatively affordable do-it-all solution, honestly, they're freaking, they're great. I yeah, don't have hesitations yeah. about them because you do have to make, like I said, pretty much three times the price to get into a better unit with better glass, which is a big, big freaking jump for sure. So they're good. Um, they just recently came out with their Kilo 10K, which is their um, newer version of the range finding binos. They still make the 3K as well. The 10K is a jump up in price point. A lot of that is from the increased ballistic features, not so much from uh the optical quality. So from my understanding and from what I've personally seen looking through both units, the SIG 3K and 10K are basically the same glass, going to be very comparable. The 10K adds more sensors on board, adds more ranging ability, adds a better ballistic engine. Um, so you're really gaining the increase in range and performance on the ballistics not so much on the optics. So just keep that in mind if you're looking at both of those as well. For the vast, vast, vast majority of folks, the Kilo 3000s are they're great. Absolutely great. All right, Steve, we had a question from recent comments we've made on the podcast about camouflage. Let's dive into the speak pipe question. In one podcast, you know that you don't need camo to hunt and you had an elk walk within four yards of you wearing a bright blue top. 
And in another podcast, you talk about doing a partnership with Cryptex. How do you reconcile those two things? What say you, Steve? I think the word choice of reconcile is an interesting word in that context. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I'm 100% like camouflage, in my opinion, is a purely aesthetic uh, thing from our our human eyes and what we think looks good. And um, if you uh, if it makes you feel good, it creates confidence and confidence kills. So yeah, from a, like, I think in that thing, when I mentioned that cryptic is a really awesome pattern to me, that's from an aesthetic point of view, right? Like it's a really good blend of colors and it does have a good breakup and things like that, but that's all to the human eye uh, out there in the field. I've just, I don't know, man, I've hunted in camo. I've hunted in solids now for better part of a decade. I've never seen a difference. Um, if you don't move, they don't catch you. Uh, if, if they wind you, you're SOL anyways. Um, so I've just never, uh, never really been a big, like you have to be, you know, camel head to toe. And, and sometimes some of that comes from, uh, you know, there, a lot of guys do treat it as like a fashion contest and that like for the, you know, through the, for quite a few years, I sold first light through SNS archery. And it's like, if, you know, the top didn't match the gaiters and the gloves, I mean, it was just, it just gets ridiculous at some point, you know, like if you're really, truly concerned about camouflage, you'd probably break it up, like have a completely different pattern on your pants than you would on your jacket uh, and things like that. So uh, yeah, to me, it's purely aesthetic to the human eye and uh, the cryptic patterns are fantastic in that regard from, from my view. Um, and, and there, you know, other people argue completely different and that's fine. I've just, all I can do is based off my personal experiences and that story he mentioned, yeah, I was on my sheep hunt, uh, this year I was by myself. Um, Patagonia has this, uh, capoline hoodie that is just fantastic in hot weather and it's blue. Um, and I was like, I'm a, I probably wouldn't wear it on a bow hunt. Cause it is, it's a blue, blue color. Um, but on the, I was on a rifle hunt. I'm like, yeah, it's not going to matter. And I was standing, you know, very open, uh, country, like just, you know, a, a pine tree every 10 yards and standing just right in, nothing around me. The bull elk comes walking down the ridge. I kind of pick my head up and he didn't see me. His head was down and he just like about 10 yards. He stopped, kind of looked at me, tilted his head, then just put his head down and walked right by and walked right by at four yards. I've got video of it. I'll well, yeah, I was going to say, we can insert on the gram. Yeah. yeah. I said, I wish I'd flip the camera around. I'm like, eh, look at me and my super high tech blue camouflage. Um, Cause they all, I mean, he didn't care until he was about three steps past me. Uh, and then I think he caught a little bit of wind and then, and then he only ran off 30 yards and stopped again. Um, so to me, that's where it's uh, that very video. Uh, it drives me nuts is where it's going to get construed as someone saying oh my gosh my camouflage works so well or you know back in the day when like scent blocking technology was a big deal like watch scent blocker at work you know mm -hmm. uh, there's all this marketing gimmicks to get us to buy stuff um uh, in my opinion so i think i don't remember you know we have these conversations that are pretty informal i didn't go back and listen to exactly what we said but that's what i took away when you told that story the first time was you know, not that camo can never work or never help. I think it can. I just think it's lower on the list of priorities, you know, as you said, like movement, wind, et cetera. Yeah. But the context of someone saying like, here's this experience. And then as you said, videoing that, and then talking about this is proof that 
camo X. works or that right. X camo works better than Y camo. Yeah. Um, that's the point is like showing an experience, showing an animal not to react in this case at a close encounter and then saying, Oh, we can give the credit to this camouflage. And it's like, right. well, no. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a benefit, but you said it's, if I had to pick 50 things, it's 49th on the list for me of priorities when I'm out there in the field. Um, the performance of the clothing was, is way, way, way out, outweigh the uh, actual uh, colors. And I do think um, blending in and, and, for me personally, when I'm out there in the field, I don't want other hunters to know I'm around. So there's certainly some aspect of camouflage in that regard of, um, you know, you could, uh, kind of blend in and, and that's why I wear just more earth tones, just browns and grays and greens, uh, when I'm out there. So hmm. for me, like not choosing camo as much over the last handful of years has really been about the fact that one, it allows me to use non-hunting clothing that, as you said, just performs well, whether that's from like a mountaineering brand or what have you, or even at the same time, if I am getting something from a hunting brand, but choosing a solid is just, I can use it a lot more. Right. So it's like, you mm -hmm. have this great piece that performs well for whatever. And it's like, yeah. I want to use that when I'm hiking or just out at the range shooting or doing whatever. And I'm just personally not the guy who likes to run around in camo outside of hunting. And so these solid pieces, it's like, if I'm going to invest in some quality clothing, number one, I want as many options as possible. I don't want to be tied to that mindset of like, I have to get it in this pattern or match something else. And two, it's like, I just get way more use out of it. Um, so, I mean, that's a, this is honestly just a super practical reason for me, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, just another random note on that too. One thing I've noticed when wearing solids and then like looking back at pictures and this is more so like related to tops, but I'll, I'll often find that I have a solid color top on, but then I have a bino harness mm -hmm. and I have my pack harness coming over me. So from like a front profile, even if I'm wearing all solids, a lot of times there's actually quite a bit of variety or breakup simply because my solid top doesn't match my solid bino harness, which doesn't necessarily match my solid uh, pack shoulder straps. And when you look at that, there's actually a fair amount of breakup to that. Even if all those options are solids, that's just a random thing I've noticed as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I don't think you want to be out there in a just, yeah, completely solid silhouette, uh, but that just doesn't exist. You're wearing a backpack, you're wearing vinyl harnesses, your pant legs are, you know, long and skinny with shadows cast in between. Um, it's, uh, yeah, you're not just like pulling up a Brown sheet walking around. All right. We had a question come through via email um, about pack transport when flying. And this guy said, what recommendations do you have for transporting your K34800 for a trip to Alaska? I don't think it will fit in the overhead. And I am concerned about straps or buckles getting damaged by baggage handlers when checking it as an item. It's a great question. Uh, we get this question a lot from customers for sure on how to fly with it. Can they fly with it? Can it be a carry on, et cetera? Um, our packs with the frame do not meet the technical regulations uh, for airlines for um, carry on items. That said, personally, we've flown with them a ton. I've heard from literally dozens and dozens and dozens of customers who've done the same. And so you can carry them on most often. Um, I've never been stopped by one. 
you do want to make sure you compress it as much as possible um, and take some, you know, basic precautions to give it as low as a profile as possible. So I wouldn't go with, you know, 60 pounds worth of gear in it, but if you want to fly with it, um, go for it. And one thing I do just as a quick pro tip as well is when I do fly with it as a carry on, one thing I like is how our lid just detaches. And so a lot of times I will put items in the lid that I want with me while I'm seated for the flight. Uh, so snacks or battery charger cables, what have you. And then I, my main pack just goes up an overhead and then I have the lid with me and my seat, which fits, you know, under the seat in front of me type thing. So that's a, a good little pro tip. I have checked my pack a ton as well. And so what I personally do is just use a larger duffel bag that the entire pack can fit in. And sometimes I put the pack uh, in the duffel with the pack loaded and sometimes the pack's completely empty, um, but I just put it in the duffel and all the other gear with it. Um, the nice thing about the duffel is yes, it's checked. You can also generally fit other items with it. So I have a sea to summit duffel. Um, I can leave a link to it just as an example, but a lot of the hunting brands make them too, like Sitka, Kuyu, First Light, et cetera. But you can put a full pack in it, an extra pair of boots, um, you know, items that are prohibited as a carry on, uh, things like that, that work great. I think you have a large duffel from Cabela's, Steve. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. So anything to add to that one? Yeah, technically, our I think twenty three or twenty four inches now. Like they keep making yeah. it a little bit smaller as the the length because the frame is rigid. You're gonna have a tough time uh, when it's assembled in the pack. You're gonna have a tough time getting that in there. I have flown since 2013, uh, since we started prototyping packs for EXO. Um, I don't know how many hundreds of times, and there was only one time I it was pre kids. My wife and I were uh, backpacking through uh, Switzerland and Italy. And one time on a, a little Italian plane flying back. So, oh gosh, we we're flying back home. I had to like, that's the only time I've ever been, had to take the pack off and they had to check it every other flight. It's never been an issue. I think that they just, you're, it's on your back when you walk through the line and they just assume it's a backpack that's kind of soft and squishy and it's just never, ever been an issue. Um, that being said, I've had the anytime a customer I've talked to this about, especially with a K3, if they really pushed you like, no, that doesn't fit. You could technically disassemble the frame and then just kind of stuff it inside the bag. And you could mm -hmm. in a pinch, you were at the gate and they were like forcing you to check it. And you really didn't want to check it. You could absolutely disassemble it. Basically it put everything inside the bag. Um, and because of how the frame sits in the bag, I know you could put it at an angle, because I think a frame, the actual measurement of the titanium, because you can take out the extensions in the bottom, you're going to get to like 22 and a half, 23 inches, something like that. In mm -hmm. which case, especially at an angle, you could fit that inside their bin requirements. So in a pinch, you could do that. Like you said, I've always uh, just worn it. And then um, same thing with flying it in a duffel bag. Uh, I found I, I by disassembling it, um, kind of taking the frame out of it, and I can kind of put the frame in at the top and stuff like that. I can... Uh, the couple times like we've flown up to Kodiak, I've done this where the duffel bag is so full that it's like, I don't know how I can get the pack in there. And once I kind of take the harness and belt off and the frame out, you can kind of wedge that thing into cracks and, and uh, fill up more of the space. So just a tip if, if you run into that situation. I like it. Uh, another quick question that came through by email that was uh, timeline relevant says, can you share the breakfast recipe that Jessica mentioned in episode 325 of the podcast. 
That sounded super good. We've gotten that question quite a bit, and I actually uh, did get the recipe from Jessica, and I've shared it with some guys individually that have asked, but we've been getting the question enough that I went ahead and shared it uh, on our website, just so guys have it as a reference. So if you go to exomountaingear.com forward slash journal, or we'll leave a link in the show description, I actually just shared that recipe um, and then talked a little bit more about it, added the nutrition facts, all that good stuff. Um, I've tried that recipe myself. I was able to buy everything for it from Amazon. And then I've tried like tweaking it a little bit. And that's one thing I appreciate about this recipe is like, yeah, you can follow it to the T as a recipe, but it's more of a, Hey, here's an idea. And like, you can customize it the way you want to customize it. So, uh, if you guys want to check that out, um, it is up there on the EXO site and just an FYI, if you guys haven't listened to that podcast episode either, it was awesome. It was about a, a father daughter sheep hunt. That was really, really stinking cool. So go get the recipe, go listen to that podcast if you haven't. And speaking of sheep, Steve, we had to wrap up today an audio question for you. Hi, Steve and Mark. This is Andy calling from the Southeast. I'm an owner of two of your packs, one for myself and one for my 16-year-old son. So we love the product. This question really is for uh, for Steve. Steve, I'll be heading to Alaska for a, <clears throat> a doll sheep hunt in August. It will be my first guided hunt as well as my first Alaska trip. And I would just love your input on maybe the top one or two things I should consider as I'm preparing for this hunt. Thanks again. Love your podcast and especially love your products. All the best. All right, Steve. So high level, first time to Alaska, first time guided, first time sheep. Like we go in a million directions. Like know, you said, what are the, like, what are the top couple of things that come to mind? Second, I heard the question. I'm on freaking in my Google drive trying to find my sheep uh, uh, checklist. Do you have like a notes <laughs> thing from your experience or what? Um, I'm seeing right now, like, you know, the one thing I remember, um, uh, you know, my, my first sheep hunt was, I've only done two. Um, the first one was in 2020 there in Alaska. Um, hey, you know, the, certainly be, I mean, be in the best shape you can be for sure. Uh, do not let that be a hindrance on your experience. So even if you're in great shape now, you can get in even better shape by the time the hunt comes around. And, and if you're in poor shape, you know, get your butt to work. Uh, Cause you don't want to spend that kind of money, do that kind of hunt and let your physical abilities be what, you know, uh, may or may not be allow you to be successful in the hunt. So, um, get out, train, get on uneven terrain. Um, uh, as we always say, the top two gear things are packs and boots. Uh, obviously you got a good pack already. Um, so boots, make sure that you're covered there, boots, shoes, whatever the heck you want to wear. Um, that, and that's just a, uh, Again, sheep hunting, I think, gets kind of put up on a pedestal, which there's plenty of guys here in the lower 48 hunting hunting deer and even elk country that's just as rough and rugged. So don't think it's like this um, invincible thing that's in front of you, right? It's, it's uh, They're big mountains, but they're actually pretty, at least in the Alaska range where I was at, um, they're pretty easy to navigate. They're Sure, there's some cliffed out tops and stuff like that, but it's like you kind of got some brush on the creek bottoms, and then once you bust out of that, uh, it's, it's pretty smooth sailing. You're just walking on top of rocks without a lot of obstacles in your ways. It's not like it's goat country. Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm just joking>. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and other than that, it's just good basic lightweight gear. Don't don't fall into that pack your fears category. Um, you know, you should. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll definitely when we. I said I was going to do this in the past, but I will 100% do it this year. Is, is shoot a video probably prior to the trip that we'll throw up on YouTube or something. It will of, be prior to the trip. Yeah, yeah. of <laughs> uh, my gear list and what I'm packing because you don't. You know, you uh, everyone's like, oh, you need, you know, 8,000 cubic inch bag to go sheep hunting. And man, I did it in a prototype bag that was like 3,400 and, and that's light. But Tyler was with me and he had his 4,800 and that was, he had plenty of extra space in that thing. Um, you don't, I don't know what, uh, what some people are thinking when they think they need these monstrous bags to go sheep hunting. Um, if you have good lightweight gear and you're somewhat conscious about weight, which you have to be, um, the biggest thing that I noticed is you you probably you know you and your guide are going to want to one trip that out and um if i remember right it was in alaska they're saying a mature ram should be about 81 to 84 pounds of of meat that you pull off of that thing so just just that you're adding 40 pounds each to your pack and then you throw a cape and horns on there um and you're each coming out with some heavy packs and there's no three mile version of a sheep pack out. They are, they are going to be back there a ways. Um, there's a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, you've got a heavy pack and you're, you're going to be hiking a long ways. So that's where uh, your pack and boots are really going to come in handy. Um, and then, um, yeah. So keeping that base weight as light as possible, just so when you are successful, um, that uh, it doesn't get ridiculously out of control coming out of there. Cause it is, you know, going to be steep and and technical in spots where you, you don't want a 130 pound pack it's going to be pretty tricky so um other than that i would definitely i think this is advice for any guided hunt communicate as much as possible with the outfitter if he will put you in touch with the specific guide that you'll be hunting with get a hold of him talk to him on the phone ask him questions ask you know you, you can't ask too many questions prior to the trip uh ask him um, you know, what's, what's some of the failures other clients have had in the past. And he's probably going to say, um, you know, physical fitness. And then also, uh, I, I think we, in our, we talked about, uh, with Dwayne Magnuson on who's the outfitter guide for our sheep hunt. He said the biggest thing next to that, or even more so is just mental attitude of people getting negative people, not being tough enough and just want to quit after a couple of days, you know, it's, it's, uh, you have this big carrot hanging in front of you. You can shoot a quote unquote, lesser species, lesser meaning, um, dollar wise for a tag in Alaska. So if you got a sheep tag, you can shoot uh, a moose if it's open or you could shoot a caribou or a black bear. Um, and so that carrot, you know, day four, day five, someone sees a nice caribou in front of them. They, they pull that trigger and forgo, uh, forgo their sheep tag for that. So having the middle, middle toughness to, you know, stick past those tough times. So, if you have any doubts about yourself, um, go do your own death hike, go do, um, you know, go do some challenging things to kind of help develop and, and further uh, advance your the kind of mental attitude when things get tough. Yeah. Those, uh, I just finding out as many, getting as many questions answered from the source, right? Like you said, Steve, from the outfitter, even more ideally from the guide I've personally found so helpful planning this goat hunt. Um, and he recently did an article about going guided and some of the questions to ask. And it was interesting after putting that up, even hearing from guides who happened to see the article and read the article and then 
took the time to reach out and share, like, I actually wish more clients would ask these questions. Mm. Um, so don't be afraid to, you know, be, be persistent and trying to get as much information as possible. And sometimes guides and outfitters are hard to reach, especially based on the time of year, right? Like maybe they're in the field or maybe they're in the off season or working another job potentially. Um, but I would just say, try and be persistent, try and get your questions answered. You know, you don't want to be a pest, but, um, yeah, I really got the impression after putting that out there and hearing from, from some folks that, uh, guides and outfitters really do obviously want you to have a good experience, but they, they want you to be as prepared as possible. They want you to be proactive and thinking through things. And, you know, it could be easy to be like, yeah, book this hunt, got the recommended gear list, talk to them in, you know, six months or eight months or whatever. Right. But I think trying to keep some line of communication open and get your questions answered can be really stinking helpful. Yeah. Um, one thing that just another gear thing that the optics like, um, binos aren't as important on a sheep hunt. And I say that because you're just looking for white animals. They're pretty stinking easy to spot. Uh, it's not like you're glassing up like gray ghost mule deer against gray rock, which can be very difficult. Um, they're very easy to spot, but the spotting scope in particular to determine if that sheep is legal or not is really critical. Um, and so ask the guide what he's packing and, and if you, you know, if he's already got best of the best, great. If, if he doesn't, but you do, uh, pack it up and say, Hey, I'm going to bring my, you know, uh, brand new Swaro ATX or Koa 77 over his, you know, 20 year old Swaro that he may still be packing around. Cause that's certainly going to uh, be to your advantage. That's a one area where an extra 10 ounces is absolutely worth the weight on a, on a hunt like that. Cause determine if he's legal, you don't want to shoot a sub-legal ram. Um, and, uh, determine if he's legal is um it's just a, it's a, a massive part of that hunt being able to pull the trigger we had on my hunt i think i had three different times i was set up with with sheep in the scope under 200 yards and all three times they were just right on the edge and i wished one of the one in particular you know you were trying to count rings uh and i wish we'd had a bigger scope with us because think he was legal but we didn't you know weren't confident enough with with the optics we had at the time to to say for sure cool well that was a good one guys thank you so much for sharing the questions once again the link to speak pipe is in the show description so go ahead and you don't need an app you don't need anything just head over click that link leave us your quick audio question for a future show or if you'd still like to email that in you can always do that as well the podcast at xamountgear.com uh, appreciate you guys taking the time to do that and also for tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button so that you receive future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.